And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, Kathy here. In today's episode, we're talking about the covenant's understanding that women are called and gifted to every aspect of ministry. Jane and I had such a rich conversation with Evelyn Johnson, who was present at that annual meeting in 1976 when we voted to ordain women. Evelyn has served in various roles of leadership throughout more than 40 years of ministry in the covenant, including as the first woman elected to lead a department within the coordinated budget and the first to be elected superintendent. We're so grateful she took the time to share some of her experiences and insights. You won't want to miss this. Evelyn, thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to have you here with us. We're excited about this conversation. Um, can you give us just a little background? Tell us, tell the listeners who you are in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I'm Evelyn Johnson, um, a widow now, two mm-hmm. sons, four grandchildren, two of whom are married, and next year there will other two will both be in college. One's already there, but um, reside in Chicago right now. Um, stepped aside from full-time, or not full-time, it was really part-time when I was here, but stepped aside from 42 years of covenant ministry just six years ago, at least in the compensated category. And have continued in ministry in other ways and will as long as I'm able. So one of the distinctives about the covenant is that we read the Bible to understand that women are called and gifted into ministry. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that became so integral to our identity? Women have really been in ministry since the beginnings of the covenant, I believe. They were there teaching children, uh, organizing experiences, particularly related to anything that had to do with food or fellowship. But it wasn't until the early 1900s when actually the person that was called, Ms. Solberg, was called by David Nivel in 1902 as the first female faculty person on staff at North Park College, that there was visibility of women in areas outside of their own local church. Um, About 10 years later then, I think very much in an effort to find a way to express leadership gifts that certainly they were wanting to express is when Covenant Women Auxiliary was actually founded in 1916, but there were years before it when there were things going on that were outside of the local church. And it was there then that women committing themselves to really at that point in time, it was education and compassion and mercy, and maybe a little bit of justice, although that wasn't used as part of the term then. 
they were very committed. They proved themselves to be excellent leaders, great fundraisers, and, you know, really started out in a thriving way and helped actually to fund and build, you know, a number of uh, buildings on North Park campus. Um, and their support of the Covenant Home of Mercy was significant. So then it was about 10, 15 years later that the next person that was a female was called into a denominational visibility as a member of the staff of the denomination, and that was Olga Lindborg, uh, called by the secretary, and that's what they called administrators then, the secretary of the Sunday school, Nathaniel Franklin. He called her to the role of director of children's ministry. He'd worked with her for about 10 years before because he had recruited her as a writer for lower elementary uh, graded Sunday school lessons. <clears throat> had met her in Sweden. She was actually from Darlinga. And, you know, just kept in contact and she kept writing and ultimately moved to the U.S. and actually was in Chicago working before Nathaniel Franklin ever was. So, um, so that led then into the 30s of the addition of Sylvia Knudsen, Peterson Larson later in life, um, becoming part of the children's ministry staff. I think what's significant about those beginnings is that the two lanes were pretty well charted out. The two lanes where women could engage in ministry. And it was acceptable. Women, you know, Covenant Women Auxiliary, now known as Women's Ministry. And at that time it was called Sunday School and young people's work, but Christian education, which later became discipleship, later Christian formation, and now today, making deepened disciples. But those were two lanes that women could move into and continue moving forward. Then, in the 30s, missionary work. Mildred Nordland being really the pioneer in that area, although there were spouses that were engaged, but Mildred was uh, single when she was engaged in ministry and was, in fact, supported by Covenant Women Auxiliary. So already you had women supporting. I mean, I'm sure Olga had a lot to do with adding Sylvia to staff, and so it was true with Covenant Women Auxiliary made it possible financially for Mildred, and then I'm sure we're involved in the others that were there in China. Um, so time, well, and I missed way back when, there certainly was someone that was really desirous of that, and this is the woman who actually attended North Park's, or what was, I'm not sure exactly what the name was for the seminary part, but of course was not able to receive the degree, but she attended and completed the whole thing. 
So as it turned out, then the years went by, women very effectively serving in those two areas. Um, added to it, people like Alva Johansson and Fran Decker. We're getting up into now my time of showing up on the scene. And also, of course, in the 60s, the whole of what was happening in terms of, you know, really young people were, you know, exploring, exploring the possibilities for them and not necessarily following in the ways of their parents and grandparents. And, you know, I think it certainly had an effect in terms of the church because I think you had seminary students and pastors that were already serving really starting to question. They challenged the process that they were in, not only their own process, but, you know, also uh, what it was for others. And it actually, of course, I think is what ultimately led to, and I know it is, because there were groups that were studying women in ministry. Meanwhile, though, there were these two lanes that women were traveling, and it did ultimately come in 1978, when I think that was the year for women, Covenant Women Auxiliary became a department a denominational department, although its budget had to be a part. I mean, it couldn't be part of the unified budget that we had then. They had to still fund themselves. But at least the voice was there among the Council of Administrators. And I think that was significant. Why couldn't they be part of the budget, the Women Auxiliary Ministry? That might, I don't know if that like opens up a whole worm of like explaining the budget, but. Yeah, I'm not sure I really know the reasons specifically that were given, but I think that it goes back to the underlying theme that, you know, women needed to stay in these two lanes and they couldn't not fund the children's ministry because now all of a sudden you have an executive secretary still called that term then that was male had been male throughout the history of that department whereas women ministry was going to be headed by a woman and maybe also they acknowledged that kind of women auxiliary had been very effective in their fundraising and could probably do better on their own that's a side comment. Um, but anyway, then it really wasn't until I was elected as the, um, and again, it was still called Executive Secretary for Christian Education and Discipleship. The name came into being. And, you know, ultimately then Doreen followed me in 1998, and the first person, woman ever to be an officer was Mary Miller in 1999, I think. So, Evelyn, when were you elected? 1986. Okay. 
the very year that I served as the moderator oh, wow. of the annual meeting. <laughs> you presided over your own election. I didn't have any idea. Yes, I did. But I had no idea that um, I was going to be the moderator. <laughs> so I know that there was the vote to ordain women in 1976. Could you tell us more about that? Like, how did it come to the annual meeting? What was the nature of the vote? Um, yeah. Can you describe it more? You know, what I just said in terms of, you know, the 60s and the fact that, you know, challenging the process was, you know, starting to, you know, really be kind of commonplace for many that were in seminary as well as younger pastors, I think, and, and I think maybe some older ones too. But I really feel like that the whole of the digging into the scriptures and articulating um, a position more from a theological, pers biblical theological perspective uh, contributed then. And of course, now there's a department of the ministry that was organized in 1968. So the first executive secretary of the ministry was there. And so ministerium gained some, you know, definite momentum, I think, with that, uh, because the fact that they were becoming more visible as, as a group. And so it was that movement, which then was brought then to the council administrators, and it went through all of the steps that, you know, were needful in terms of you know, the study and, you know, then the recommendation from Department of Ministry and from the Covenant Ministerium to and the Council of Administrators. So it came through all the channels. And there were some proponents, some of whom are very much alive today. I mean, people that are in their late 70s and 80s that were the ones that really were the pushers. I was there in seven, or 17, 1976. Um, very thankful that the superintendent that I was uh, with, uh, Warren Swanson, was definitely an advocate for women in ministry. And he convinced our executive board in the Midwest Conference that I needed to be the delegate because he said, this is going to be a historic meeting and Evelyn needs to be there. And I was also one of the few women that were part of conference staffs, even though I was in my lane, <laughs> Christian education. So I was there. Um, and I think, of course, you know, you wonder what you think. I was in my 30s, early 30s. I don't think I was as, I don't think I was as shocked or hurt as I was then, you know, maybe it was about three years later when it was brought to the floor again by a delegate. But you know, this had a, they had a good process. They had planned this out. 
And certainly the debate was uh, there, but it wasn't one. I think that debate almost was a little more civil than the one that occurred a few years later. But, um, and I don't remember what the exact vote is. All I know is that it passed. And those of us that were female and those of us that were ad or those that were advocates for just kind of went wild. Really? Like was there enthusiasm <laughs> it was just, when it passed? I mean, it was just such a great joy that this, you know, had really come to pass. Even though I think for a number of us, it was like, but we've been in ministry, you know, why all of a sudden did we have to vote to make this authentic? You know, I mean, there was still that kind of hesitance, I think, there. But um, yes, it was... Uh, it was a joyous moment, but then, you know, ultimately with some nudging from Kathy, I did remember then the vote, the motion that was put before us to resource local churches, and it failed. And I think, you know, whether it was my thoughts or whether it was in dialogue with my superintendent, when we got back home, that it was certainly a stake that just put into place what was real, and that was you can pass something denominationally, but local churches have autonomy, and they could choose. In, in some ways, I always looked at it because I've been involved a lot with commissions, sort of like the resolutions. You know, you can pass them, but they're not binding. Um, and that's probably what's been so different in these recent years. But, and I think we, we knew that, even though we didn't really know it. We were <laughs> celebrating but it was still like, mm. I was part of the first task force for women in ministry. And I think I was the only person coming from the perspective of being an educator. I think the others were, were women who either were ordained or were on their way to being ordained. And I just do recall the focus of the discussion was around what can be done to open the way. I mean, because it was four years before Janet Lundblad was called to Donaldson, Indiana. Um, and, you know, then you know the story of how slow it's been. But I think that... Um, at that time, at least at that time, when we had that women in ministry task group, that it was primarily women advocating for women. Um, yes, there were 
some administrative people. I just remember my superintendent being part, but um, and I don't remember other males, even though there were those males out there, but it was to a great extent women advocating for women, and that has some barriers because they were advocating and they were isolated, I think, to a great extent from the mainstream of what was going on, sadly. I mean, I, I'm just sad to know that through the years, those women, I know I have scars, but mine aren't anything like what they are or were because, you know, several have died. Uh, for those that were seeking a call, and it just, the door just wouldn't open. You know, to know your call, to be prepared for it, um, but the door wasn't open, even though this whole body said yes. Uh, it did not change the two lanes. That body did not open that way for ministry. It was this action over here that had to do with what was possible, you know, in terms of credentialing, affirming of a call, um, long journey long journey. And interestingly enough, prior to that time, I don't think people that stayed in their lanes felt necessarily any pressure. It was interesting because some of us then started to have questions risen about what, what were we engaged with? Were we teaching men? You know, what, you know, what was that all about, you know, I mean, women have been doing this for a number of years. I know not in every place, so, but um, a very painful journey, very. And I don't think I ever knew the reality of that or even close to what that really pain was like until after I left the role as the executive, we then had the name executive minister. After I left that role in 1998 and went on a local church staff, being affirmed, I mean, I was affirmed greatly for, you know, the contributions I was going to bring and all that stuff, and coming face to face with the reality that there were some things that I was not being allowed to do because I was a woman. I remember the day when I, I mean, I figured that all out. <laughs> because even though it was subtle, kind of figured that out. And ultimately, I remember that day when I went home and told my husband, this may be a short call. Mm -hmm. And it was not because I chose to leave. 
And I love that church and the people that I worked with. But it was um, a very, very painful experience. And I think I always felt God gave me that opportunity to experience that so that it increased, I think, my empathy for what had been experienced and was still being experienced by these women who had, quote, done everything right, if you want to put it that way, in terms of except just like our persons of color experience just happened to have been born a woman. And then we could add to it this whole matter of being a woman of color, even put that at a lower possibility. So, yes, we shake our heads, and yet we're deeply thankful for all of those who were trailblazers, who were willing to take the risks, both the females that did, but also the, the males that were willing to be advocates and be able, you know, I mean, they risked sometimes their own roles because they were taking a stand. And that's part of how I think in some ways you would say, how did it become so integral? It was not until we had, you know, that kind of advocacy and, you know, kind of the increased number of people who, you know, you've got to have that core increase in order for that to move forward. And it, it's got to be more than just the thinking, even though it began with the thinking, and you've got to have the thinking. But then it had to be really feeling with it, but then doing something. And, you know, I've, through the years, worked with many who, biblically, theologically, they were right there. But translating that knowledge into a way of feeling and acting. And it manifests itself for me in my lack of a sense of being a colleague with that person. That we could sit down at the table and we could share thoughts and we'd come out of it with a better product. And that is a very limited number of people in my, limited number of males in my life. I'm curious, like, I feel like you're naming a place where the covenant has been and is of, like, we love to, and we love to be excited about this, right? Like, we yes. affirm women. It is great that is, we look great on paper. And then also, definitely you hear stories. I hear stories. I know stories of people who have suffered in kind of some of these ways that you're hinting at and talking about, and how does that all work together? <laughs> and see, that's, that's one of the things that continues to be a concern to me, and, you know, no different than it is in terms of our most saying. I mean, I think we have 
great evidence of significant progress in terms of numbers of women clergy engaged in full-time ministry or part-time in a whole variety of roles, including, you know, being the lead pastor of a church, which seemed to kind of be the, the marker that sort of kept, you know, a certain number of people out. I mean, it was interesting. And so it is also true in relation, I mean, we have significant um, progress in terms of, you know, the engagement of a number of persons of color. But population and even participation, presence, doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And it doesn't tell the whole story because it's a question of what are those people experiencing serving in those roles, even some that are positions of power. What is, how are they living that life together with their male, their male colleagues? And I don't think that that's a question that's answered all in the positive. And, you know, I mean, I realized I was a lot older, but I would say I left 42 years of covenant ministry. And that whole matter of experiencing those challenges went right up to the end. It wasn't something that hadn't disappeared. So I, I really wonder about that today. I have maybe a little insight that validates some of my concern through, you know, the whole matter of being a mentor to a number of uh, young women in leadership, I mean, in ministry. Um, so how do we get there? I think one of the things that keeps striking me as you're sharing is how, in part, how do we keep getting there has been in community, right? Like the women auxiliary, the women's ministry crew, they raised the funds so that there could be a female person in staff. Like talk about like, not even just saying no, like we have a link too. It's like they, women have carved out like forcibly yes, this yes. lane. Yeah, and it's been in community, but it also has been needful, Jane, for there to be some of us who were willing to just go ahead and move forward. Well, you said needful? Needful. How did I say needful? needful. Okay. Oh, it has been, yeah, we had to all, it's been in community, yeah. but we also needed some people who were willing right. to just, take the risk, follow God's call, and live into it. Now, where there was the matter of that door ultimately being shut when it got to the matter of the ministry from the pulpit, that was 
you know, a very, very different thing. But um, does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? It does. Um, it's making me think of my spiritual director says a lot that the things that God invites us into, they're lonely journeys that mm. we do in community. Mm. Right? And that's oh, what, yeah. because of what you have done in the secret, you're able to connect with those in community. And that's how these new trails get forged. I think that's, you know, for trailblazers, for people who are first, you use the word, which I would use if I were to say what's number one on my list in terms of the challenge. And that's the loneliness. Um, the lack of peer colleagues that you can look to to help you grow in, you know, your ability to lead. Um, it's, it's a definite um, solo journey, but the support that you can get from Colleagues, and that's why I say when it became more than women supporting women and could become men engaged. And then I really, in my own journey, felt so blessed by the whole matter of the increase of the mosaic because I felt like that that was, you know, if. No matter what your marginalization, you do have at least some common thread. And that is, you know a little bit about what it means to be that marginalized person. It's different. I mean, I'm not by any means saying that they're equivalent, but it's different. But, you know, I felt like that Yes. I mean, I, I thought three things I carried through. One, I was a female. Two, I was in Christian education, so I had this lane, you know, that. Uh, and three, I was from outside the covenant. I came into the covenant through marriage. And you see, I had been part of denomination in which there was no issue to be a woman in leadership in the church. And so that transition, even though I was certainly very comfortable, comfortable particularly in, you know, the being well-centered in a biblical writing. Um, but it was, and I came out of the field of education, mathematics. Thought I was going to be just a math major, period, but then the acceptable route then for a woman was to, and I, I loved to teach, and so that was, that was my name. But then I had taught in secondary schools, I taught in college, and hadn't experienced these barriers 
maybe because in the 60s there was such a critical need for people <laughs> to teach in that field. I mean, you were not old enough to know this, but um, there was such a thing that emerged as they called new math, and it was all with the whole process of the science uh, emerging as the field to go in. So they were looking for math teachers. And uh, so anyway, but, you know, it just is real that the journey includes sometimes those areas where you've got to get out of your comfort zone. And it was certainly out of my comfort zone when I responded then in my late 20s to a call from God to engage in ministry. That was out of my comfort zone. And then, you know, although then I found comfort zone in, you know, the whole matter of the, the track that are the road I found that I should be on, the lane. And, but then was able to be taken out of that because of things started to expand for me. Like first was to be engaged in church leadership, whole leadership of the church as far as equipping events. But how did that expansion happen? It happened to a great extent because I had a male advocate and that was the superintendent. I will always be deeply grateful to Warren Swanson and to Milton Ingebrigtsen, who was the president then of the covenant. These leaders opened doors for me that made it possible, but I had to be willing to walk through them. But they opened doors. And, you know, it was like if I was trusted with a little, then I would get more. And I'll never forget when I was, you know, contacted regarding being the mod or allowing my name to stand for election as the moderator, I went to my superintendent and I said, oh, gee, you know, do you think I can do this? And he said, well, what does God say? <laughs> and then I said, well, I don't hear any resounding no. And he said, this was interesting. Milton would not have asked you if he didn't feel that you were capable of fulfilling this role. And that was meaningful because it, and, and he, Milton Ingebrigtsen had been involved about five or six years before in opening up a space for me to be involved because my superintendent thought I should be at what then they called Coleco, Coleco II, which was a visioning, you know, planning the covenant of the future. And my superintendent thought I should be there. And there were only, I think, one or two places for each conference. I forget what the allotment was. And he said, we'll figure out a way. And because he was on the design committee, he figured I could be a small group leader. And so ultimately, that's how I got there. So, and Milton 
President Ingebrigtsen agreed with that. They introduced me to a lot of other people that really um, were people who also helped in terms of opening doors. Does that help? I hear you illustrating what you were talking about mentoring, right? Like that, and maybe that's the side of community piece that you're talking about too, right? Like you can't do, you can do a lot by yourself, but you can, you can't do it by yourself. You have to have. No, you can't. Um, And you need those people that, I mean, I'm just deeply thankful for the people. I mean, first deeply thankful for, God's call upon my life, and for the woman. Now, that was a woman, a woman who was 40 years my senior, who was my mentor for 30 years of that, um, until she died at the age of 96. Mm. And I've always said she read more books in the prior year than I had, and I read a lot. So, <laughs> But we used to do it by phone, all of Zoom today, but... Mm. Um, Anyway, she challenged me in my late 20s. Um, she was a public school teacher, so she, you know, inviting me to be a part of the teaching staff with the junior high was a normal, natural thing because she knew I was a teacher. But then she challenged me after working with me and, and being engaged as a mentor. That was kind of like a spiritual director thing that she said, are you really doing what God wants you to do? Oh, hadn't thought about that. (laughs) Not for the last 10 years, because I had started off to college at the age of 17 to be, quote, what we called then a religious education director. So I preached my first sermon when I was a senior in high school, wow. on Easter. No way. Yeah, and and God did not call me to preach, and that's just fine. <laughs> I'm not looking for another. <laughs> but there's times when I have needed to fulfill that role. But yeah, it it was uh, definitely those people that were the advocates and the people that came alongside and were encouragers, not the least of which was my husband. I always said that, you know, ultimately, after years in ministry, I knew that God intersected my life with Phil's before he could call me into ministry because he knew I'd need the kind of uh, support and encouragement. And because, you know, he was, I mean, it was just a definite partnership. I mean, he was a man before his time in terms of, you know, egalitarian was just the way it should be. And it was not, uh, I have daughter-in-laws today that thank me for everything (laughs) that their sons saw modeled and that their father really engaged him, so... But those individuals, but also having that mentor all those years when when we didn't have, you know, what 
certainly would be considered today like a peer mentoring type of scenario. She could have, her father was a covenant minister. She could have gone to seminary and been a very effective pastor, but it wasn't, quote, allowed at that time. Um, and of course, besides that, she said, and I didn't speak Swedish well enough to preach in Swedish. <laughs> so she went the route of education, but she ran a lot of things in the church where we were in Lincoln. And ultimately, was always kind of under the auspices of a male that was the named person in charge. So, makes sense? You asked me, you know, about when you shared the questions about what are the things that, you know, have really been the celebrations. And I would say those encouragers that God brought into my life. You know, first the call, second the encouragers, the advocates, the people who did emerge to be the colleagues that I really could share and, you know, like just get that feedback that was honest, it wasn't couched in anything that, you know, was really custom made for Evelyn because she was a female. Um, I celebrate the fact that, you know, I really had the opportunity to explore in expanded area to get out of my lane. And ultimately, that when I did, that, you know, really God enabled that process and we, we experienced good things. And, you know, that certainly was, even though I myself, when I first began, was very focused on education, and I will always be an educator, but, you know, it, it moved from being focused on the whole of Sunday school ministry, youth ministry, to then all of a sudden having a larger audience of lay leaders, and then it all of a sudden increased to a larger area of you know, people engaged in the whole of that ministry throughout the denomination. And then, you know, even when I was in that role, it expanded to include clergy, because when I was in charge of Midwinter back in the 90s, uh, that was like, oh my. So there were a number of things that happened when I was here as an administrator the first time, 1986 to 98, that were expansion. Even though I was the executive secretary of uh, Christian Education and Discipleship, you know, I was involved in starting Covenant Mission Connection, you know, we started the first defense office, like I said, it was in charge of Midwinter and then ultimately annual meeting. And then covenant orientation was the big one. But it, and I value, I celebrate the opportunities that were given to me to be in those roles.
I celebrate, you know, the fact that God gave me the strength and the courage to be the first in different roles. Um, wasn't an easy journey. Um, I probably was resistant to each of, I know I was resistant to each of those opportunities. My husband would say to me then, is God calling you? <laughs> say, well, it kind of seems that way. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately, as I lived into the call, it was just the sheer matter of it being God's call that enabled me to keep moving forward. Because he also would, I would come home so discouraged or having had such a uh, bad experience, oftentimes with, you know, male colleagues, and he'd say, whose call are you living? Oh. <laughs> Yes, he would remind me <laughs> that God was in charge and that, but it was good to have that reminder. So, good. so I'm thankful for those opportunities and thankful, deeply thankful that I've seen, lived long enough to witness progress. And although I, like I say, have certain concern yet. And I think that relates to some of the challenges that I felt I had. And I mentioned one earlier about the loneliness and the lack of peer colleagues that you could really engage with and you could grow as a leader. Um, the challenge of being stereotyped as a female, and for me, the added one of being a Christian educator and all my newsprint. And lo and behold, I see a lot of men using newsprint today. But you can't believe the number of years <laughs> that I got that kind of feedback. Oh, here she is with her newsprint. And I know they were saying it a little bit in jest, but it, it cut to the core because the fact that it was the it was who I was. Or I would hear comments about, oh, yeah, Evelyn in her process. And it's like, yes, I am a process consult consultant. Um, and I'm not going to back off of that. I believe in the engagement of the people and believe God speaks through the people gathered. And so if you're going to do visioning, you need to gather all that input. And, and he's, you know, gifted me with the ability to sort through it and identify themes. And, you know, also, like I said, it's been both a blessing and <laughs> cross to barriers, the whole vision to action person who... <laughs> You know, I mean, that's, that's just who I am. 
and I'll live into that. But I, I do, I also wonder with this about the whole matter of the healing that needs to be tended to. Because even though we have people who, you know, are certainly in a very different context than, say, those of us who were, you know, engaged 30 years ago, um, there are still a number. I mean, this hasn't been even at this point for that long. And I just have to acknowledge there are scars from those 42 years. And those scars can be opened up quicker than what I even felt like was possible. And I've had that happen in recent years. And I've been so helped by my dear friend, Debbie Blue, who, you know, has helped me walk through that and, you know, just let go of some experiences that were very, very painful. Mm. And they're, they're just under the surface, you know, and you realize that you need to engage in some healing to be whole. My favorite verse, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that's, you know, something that I hold on to, but I also know that, you know, that can also serve to cover sometimes some pain that I need to be able to work through, if that makes sense. But it's been a joy. I wouldn't make a different choice. I would still be in that role of taking risks, believing that it wasn't for me, but that there would be those that would come behind me. And I do thank God that I've lived long enough to see that. And what a joy. I mean, I can't even, when you get to be as old as I am, you'll know the reality of what a joy that is. And also to be now in the role of, of mentor and just be able to listen and, because in many ways, that's what we needed back in the 80s with just someone to listen to us. We're in the 70s before. To listen, to allow you to just express. It's part of the process of the normal kind of ongoing healing restoration process. I really appreciate you mentioning the, the work of healing that's necessary. Because I think there's a part of me that Wishes that I'm, as I accomplish, I find healing, <laughs> right? Like there's sort of this hope that like, oh, as I'm like, as I'm 
growing in my work responsibilities or whatever it is in my ministry that it it means that I'm also healing when it's actually they're they're two different things. I think they don't necessarily overlap as much as I wish <laughs> as I would like. You know, it's so funny, Jane, when you comment about that. I thought of another thing that was a real challenge. It's related. It's not the same. It takes us out of healing. But one of the great challenges for me was to seek balance in my life. And I think I'm still trying. I don't think that I ever would be able to identify a time when I said it was well-balanced. And it was because I always thought I had to work harder. And I'm just not sure <laughs> but what that isn't going on yet in our current environment. But it was like, I just have to, that's part of what's a trap in this process too because you've got to work harder to show that you can do it or women can do this. And then I go back to what I was confident of when God called me and into the role in Midwest Conference that even though I couldn't envision it, I trusted that God would enable me. And he has been faithful. And after 42 years, I still was confident that he would enable me. But yet you can get trapped into that thinking. And it's very much because of expectations and voices that surround you. And it's a temptation. So I had to say often to him, yield not to that temptation. And you don't, in a sense, um, get, I don't know how to put it other than this to say the real depth of appreciation. So you think if I just work a little harder, because it's like this is what's expected. One thing that I really appreciate about your story and then but then also how I experience you is part of your story is there were several that came before you and then there were several that mentored you. You are somebody who has experienced a lot of firsts in the covenant, but I also feel like you have set people up for firsts as well. You've mentored others and you've led others to become other firsts, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I do think of Greg Yee as one of them, you know? So naturally being Asian, that is, that is particularly meaningful for me. <laughs> and also because quite frankly, Greg's leadership is one that I deeply value. And, and I know that it was in part from your, you creating that, you helping to carve out that space and mentor. So can you tell me more? I want to know more about that part of Evelyn. That part of Evelyn. We've talked about the the Evelyn that's been mentored, but now Evelyn the mentor. And mm -hmm. the, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's 
you know, one of the things that probably I see as as a you know definite characteristic of women in leadership, it's kind of a natural gifting to to really be kind of the nurturer, the supporter. Uh, but I put it under the category of empowerment when I, you know, led teams and subscribe, you know, totally to Kuzis Posner's five leadership challenges uh, to model the way, you know, to share the vision, to challenge the process, you know, to enable people to act. I mean, in other words, empower them. And along the way, you encourage the heart. So it's like all of that's integrated into the whole process for me of being a team leader to help people, you know, thrive, to come alongside, to offer praise. You know, I love Ken Blanchard's his first book on one minute manager, you know, catch people when they're doing it right and praise them catch them when they're doing it wrong and critique it so that they can learn from that. And um, I also feel very strongly about that whole matter of relationship building and the fact that we bring our whole person into the role. I mean, we bring our family of origin, our current life, our friends, and you know, really sought to cultivate that kind of atmosphere within the team um, to be able to have a strong sense of family and that we're here for you, we celebrate with you, and we grieve with you when those things. So that's a big part of it. But I think also it's always been my delight to be able to, to push people to take some risks, to do things that they hadn't done before, and also to imagine what it is that God may be calling them into. You know, I have quoted, in fact, every team that I've ever led has heard this many times, and you've probably heard it. You know, I have this quote on my wall that says, you know, it's, I think it's, um, oh, gosh, now I've lost the name. I'm <laughs> a known person, sorry. The quote is, each person, each experience in life that God provides is perfect preparation for a future that only he can see. Corey Ten Bloom. Yeah, I just, as it was. So, you know, that, for some people, it won't, it won't click with them. For others who are learners themselves and you know, really seeking to grow and to be faithful to God's call, I think it does connect with them, that kind of environment. And I think 
you know, specifically like talking about Greg, I think there were things that, you know, he had opportunity to be engaged with that were new, but that there was joy in that, that he experienced growth, but it was for God's glory and neighbor's good, not for his own, you know, as such being the best Asian staff person there could be. <laughs> so, but he led us. I think that's another part of this whole thing too, is it's a mutual benefit. Because I still felt that even when I was mentoring others, they were mentoring me. And even these mentees I have now, I learned so much from them as I listened to their stories. And I think that was really true in team. Um, you know, I mean, I've always said, I mean, that my journey in terms of, you know, the whole journey toward racial righteousness has been a journey in which the primary teachers have been people who are part of the teams that I led. Now, there have been a lot of others, and I affirm them. But So I think mutuality is also important. You aren't just pouring in. They are in, you aren't just investing in them, they're investing in you. And so you're growing together. So Evelyn, as we wrap up, what word do you sense God speaking to the covenant today? Well, I referred to one earlier and I'll just re-articulate it. I really think God is nudging. Well, first I want to say the covenant's God's saying, stay the course. But I think God is nudging the covenant to go a little deeper and to explore this whole area of what's the experience of the persons that are serving in these various roles and how can we support and encourage and equip them to navigate and to grow in the process. Are they experiencing authentic community with their colleagues? Are they, because for me, a major challenge was finding my voice so well articulated by Kathy Shang. I was so thankful for her book because I thought that names it. And so that's my deep concern. Are the women who are engaged in ministry finding their voice? Are they more than somebody just sitting in a chair, but are they finding their voice? Uh, for many years, I've always said, as I was part of, you know, administrative circles, I was thought before I spoke. Now, that doesn't mean that that isn't a good thing to think before you speak. But did not, I sized up the room 
before I shared and oftentimes would end up saying nothing because it wasn't a room in which I felt that there was a welcoming of, of what I might contribute because it might not be the same thing. And so I'm concerned for that whole matter of our women both in local church pastoral ministry at the conference level, at the denominational level, uh, finding their voice in those circles, you know, the pace setting, I mean, the, the whole of the process of moving beyond simply, and I don't want to say simply because position is important, but how are you experiencing that? Are you a full participant as God intends? I think that's what I tend to say. And of course, I really want to emphasize, and I commented about this, that the covenant needs to pay attention to not only what's happening with women in general, but women of color. Because as I commented, I had three different things that I knew that I was dealing with. I was female, I was in Christian education, and I was from outside the covenant. But I was the dominant race. And that makes a difference, even though got all these other things that you need to work through. So I believe we can do it. And it is a we. It's the whole community. We still need people who are willing to be the first. And we have one coming up this year in a presidential nominee who's is willing to be that first. And that's a good thing. If the covenant pays attention to those three areas, which might include different ways of doing things, because this whole matter of what even the African-Americans have been doing in terms of their peer mentoring I think that's a model that could be used in a variety of other ways, I mean, other audiences. And we need to learn from our brothers and sisters. Thank you, friends, for joining us for the Love the Cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.